There is a new earth movement that sometimes people talk about. But how can the earth or the universe fit into a 6,000 year history? This leads to challenging questions. How does a new earth teaching deal with things such as prehistoric fossils of dinosaurs and mammoths, things, things like that? If God has a 6,000 year plan for man <clears throat> before Christ's return, then what do we do with the universe, the galaxies, the stars? What do we do with the age of the earth itself? Now, some will try to force all of creation into a 6,000 year history, ignoring that measuring things such as a cosmic microwave background radiation or calibrated radiometric dating or calibrated carbon, carbon dating show that the universe and the galaxies within the universe and the stars themselves are billions of years old, <clears throat> even if some of these dating methodologies are off by a modest percentage. Some try to force the earth itself into a 6,000-year history and ignore other scientific and dating techniques, such as relative dating, which is studying fossil and sedimentary layers, uh, for example, in the earth's oceans, radiometric dating, Paleomagnetic stratigraphy, try to say that fast. That's a dating method based on changes in the direction of the Earth's magnetic field where scientists look at traces of iron oxide that are forming within rocks over time and how the iron oxide, uh, because of the Earth's magnetic field uh, changing over years, <clears throat> will orient or orient, orient in different directions as those rocks are formed. And there's potassium-argon dating. There's many other types of chemical analysis that are done, even tree rings, tree rings, and Arctic ice core samples, and Antarctic ice core samples show an age of the Earth beyond 6,000 years. So does God have a plan we heard God's plan mentioned in the opening prayer. Does God have a 7,000-year plan? What does Scripture teach about God's plan? And what does Scripture reveal about the universe that good science does not contradict? What do we know? What does the church teach? The title of the sermon today is Elohim and God's 7,000-year plan. Elohim and God's 7,000-year plan. This is a review of what the church has taught for decades and decades and decades. There is no contradiction between science, honest science, and Scripture. No contradiction between understanding that there were indeed dinosaurs around and other animals uh, perhaps millions of years ago, <clears throat> and that God created Adam and Eve, the first humans, about 6,000 years ago. Let's first establish something very important to, to put ourselves in the right, fr right frame of mind. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, please, Ephesians 3, and let's begin by just reminding ourselves of something that we know. It's an important truth that the church 
uh, understands. Ephesians 3, let's begin in verse 8. Paul is speaking to the saints. And he says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was very thankful and humbled by that opportunity, that, that commission. And then he continues, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is God doing through, <clears throat> through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit? What is God doing? Uh, what is his purpose? Uh, so what is the fellowship of the mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages and has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ? Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1, verse 16. All things visible and invisible created by and through Christ. Revelation 4, verse 11. Very important to begin the sermon grounding ourselves in this truth. Revelation 4, verse 11. The 24 elders who should know a thing or two about the history of the universe. God's righteous, angelic Council, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne in verse 10 and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, this is a profound truth that the 24 elders are proclaiming before the presence of God. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. God, through Christ, created all. Everything. How can this be? How can this be? Doesn't the Bible teach a theory that the Earth was created and all things were created 6,000 years ago? No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Now, there are indications in the Bible, and we'll go through some of these, that there is a 6,000-year time for man, and that the 7,000th year, the the seventh millennium, will be God's millennial Sabbath. And it's that plan that we're going to discuss today. This will not be a science uh, lesson. I'm not qualified to do that, but we will talk about God's 7,000 year plan and review what the church has taught and also what uh, historians have written and what the scriptures, most, most importantly, what the scriptures teach. <clears throat> so whether it was Mr. Armstrong or the church today, what you believe is nothing odd. What you believe is nothing odd. Eusebius, who wrote around 200 A.D., which is 1,800 years ago, uh, wrote about a thousand-year millennial reign 
of Christ and a first resurrection of the dead. And you can find this in his histories, uh, book three, chapter 39, if you care to look it up. So this notion has been around for a long time. Mr. Armstrong did not come up with this idea. There are writings uh, that are called the uh, dialogue, dialogue with uh, Trypho, T-R-Y-P-H-O. And this was written by Justin Martyr. And in chapters 18 and I'm sorry, chapters 80 and 81, he talks about the same thing. Thousand year reign of Christ after a 6,000 year time for man. Irenaeus, I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S, Irenaeus lived around, probably born in 130 A.D. and died 202 A.D., so again, pretty far back. Irenaeus didn't find this stuff on the Internet. Okay, this is, this is 1,800 years ago. <clears throat> he was the Bishop of Lyons, France. And he wrote the following. For in as many days as this world was made, in so many thousand years shall it be concluded. Now, whether or not we believe everything, and we don't believe everything Irenaeus writes, but the point is this teaching had been around from the beginning of the earliest time in, Christ, in Christianity, regardless of whether or not Irenaeus was full of error in other, other ways. So he wrote, For as in many days as the world was made, in so many thousand years shall it be concluded. This is an account, and he references Genesis 2 and, and uh, verses 1 and 2 and so forth, of things formerly created, as also it is a prophecy of what is to come. So Irenaeus continues, for, for the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days uh, created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the six thousandth year. Now, we don't believe this just because Irenaeus uh, wrote this. But what we're establishing is that this teaching has been around down through the ages. So those who are wrong and those who are ignorant of Scripture and, frankly, ignorant of science are those who teach against these, these concepts that the church teaches and understands. Okay, so we'll, we'll go through uh, uh, some more of Irenaeus' quote. He says, finally, uh, these rewards, I'm skipping down in what Irenaeus wrote, these rewards are to take place in the times of the kingdom that is upon the seventh day. So he's talking about the, the millennium, uh, which was, has been sanctified in which God rested from all the works which he created and which is the true Sabbath of righteousness. That's from Against Heresies, book five. Uh, I took those quotes from chapters 28 and 33. And Tertullian <clears throat> wrote about this as well. <clears throat> There's a more contemporary person you may have read about named uh, Dr. Douglas Winnell. <clears throat> and uh, he wrote in the Living Church News, uh, 2001, uh, over the years, the Church of God has explained that God has a 7,000-year plan. While this is not specifically stated in Scripture, it is understood through history and scriptural analogy. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we read that the creation week, we read that during the creation week, God created the earth and all things in six days, and that he rested on the seventh day. The apostle Peter, studying Psalm 90, verse 4, drew the analogy that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
<clears throat> That's a reference to 2 Peter uh, 3, 8. The Apostle Paul drew on a spiritual analogy comparing God's rest on the seventh day of the creation week, our rest on the Sabbath, and the ultimate rest for Christians in the millennium. And Dr. Winnell cites Hebrews 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. Continuing, during the millennial rest, the saints will rule with Christ for 1,000 years <clears throat> when the kingdom of God is set up on this earth. And he cites Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. The implication of this analogy is that God's plan has allotted 6,000 years for man to attempt to rule this earth, followed by the 1,000-year reign of Christ and the saints. <clears throat> I won't read all the rest of the quote here from Dr. Winnell, but he then brings up Edward Gibbon and how Edward Gibbon wrote about the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium and how it was intimately connected with the second coming of Christ. So, <clears throat> so this teaching has been around. That's uh, Edward Gibbon quote from The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But some have, many, <clears throat> have wrongly taken this notion and tried to fit the entire history of the entire universe into 6,000 years. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what science teaches. And it is causing people to stumble. And so you have this movement, <clears throat> um, then they have their scientists, and they're teaching this stuff, that everything was created within 6,000 years. And that's fundamental Christianity. That's conservative Orthodox Christianity. No, that is wrong and not what the Bible teaches. And if that's what you allow yourself to pursue, then you will run into, you will run into, you will be confronted with facts from the Bible, facts from science, and what the church teaches that you will not be able to reconcile with that wrong understanding. And it will hurt your faith, and it will cause you to stumble or your children to stumble. So what does the Bible actually teach? You know, in a way, this is the easiest sermon I can give. Because this is just me talking to you about what the church has taught all of my life. What does the Bible actually teach? <clears throat> so we're going to go through, <clears throat> in seven points... Um, an infinite amount of time now. Not billions of years, <clears throat> but an infinite amount of time. We'll try to do that within the allotted time uh, that we're constrained with here. <clears throat> so, we won't turn there, but an important point, uh, Genesis 1 verse 14 uh, reveals that God created the lights of the firmament not only for days and night, but also for seasons and days and years, and there's an indication in Genesis 1.14, and I believe this is true, that it's also to help us measure the holy days. But that is not when the sun and moon were created. And let's be careful about that, moms and dads, because these little books that we get for our kids where they draw and color in them and about the creation week, uh, the sun and moon were not created then. They, they'd been around for millions of years. It's what we teach. It's what the Worldwide Church of God taught before the heresy. It's what Dr. Meredith teaches. It's nothing exciting. It's what we teach. <clears throat> now, we know there's an earlier time than that. Let's all turn to the beginning in, Gen in John 1, which we all know that's sort of one of these uh, Church of God jokes. You know, go to the beginning, John 1, and we know that. That is the beginning. John chapter 1, 
Now, this is forever in the past. This is where it all began. Or this is a recording of where it all began. John chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning is not Genesis, it's John. Or the recording of the beginning. So in, uh, and I'll read this, and I, I, we've talked about this before, uh, other ministers have, so I won't talk about imperfect tense Greek and so forth like that. I will just read it uh, more accurately than it's translated without explaining all of the things about the Greek. So, in a beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. Or in the beginning, or in a beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was the God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So there we were confronted with that statement again, aren't we? So let's just, let's just give up on other nonsense that contradicts God's word about who created what. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That is the beginning. That is forever uh, in past. Now, Christ and the Father were the Elohim, as we know, in Genesis chapter 1. And remember the title of the sermon? I think I gave the title, Elohim and God's 7,000-year plan. Christ and the Father were the Elohim. The Elohim... Uh, that's an, a uniplural Hebrew word. And that's what was, that's the word used in Genesis 1 verse 1. It is a plural noun. It's multiple. Now God could have used a different word. And you might want to write this down. I know for a lot of you this is review. He could have used Elohim instead of Elohim. So Elohim is spelled in the English E-L-O H-I-M, E-L-O-H-I-M. That's uniplural. Elohaim, spelled differently, E-L-O-H-A-I-M, is a dual noun. Dual. Dual. Two. God did not use that. He did not use Elohaim in Genesis 1-1. Why? You know the answer. We'll wait until point seven uh, to explain that, but... You know the answer. <clears throat> so Genesis 1, uh, 1 is not the beginning. The beginning is John 1, 1. And that's trillions times trillions of years uh, into the past and even more than that. Because technically, and this is something I just find interesting, uh, scientists have, have, they theorize and they've, they've concluded that without a physical universe, there can be no concept of time. That time is actually another dimension that's only possible because of matter. And so if you'd like to go Google that, you can Google James Hartle, H-A-R-T-L-E, Stephen Hawking, Albert Einstein, and they all theorize that space and time are literally part of a physical universe. So before there was a physical universe, then there was really no, no time. Not just no concept of time, not just no seasons, but there was no time. There was no before. There was no earlier. We can't fully understand that because we're human. But again, space has three dimensions and time is is the fourth dimension. Maybe there are other dimensions, but it's a fourth dimension. Before God created space, there was no time. There was no time. 
which I think helps us understand how we can live with God forever in the, in the God plane. And, you know, you'll never be bored. It's always wonderful. It's, you're always exploring. It'll be fantastic. And, you know, you, there's no concept of, you know, I'm, I'm bored right now. And I think even if there was time, God is so awesome, you, you, you would never be tired of, you know, of God's plans and, and fellowshipping with, with, with each other, with, with the rest of the family. Point, that's point one. So point one is that in the beginning was the, was the Father and the Word. In the beginning was God and the Word. And that was before time began. Point two. Let's turn to uh, Job chapter 38. Point two, as far as my sermon goes today, is that later God created the spirit world. Later God created the spirit world. So we'll turn to Job, one of a couple or few scriptures we could turn to. And we have this account of the angels uh, rejoicing when the, uh, the God was planning out the, uh, the physical universe. So Job 38, verse 4. So point number two, later God created the spirit world. One way we can prove that is from Job 38, verse 4. God is asking Job, where were you when I created, uh, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. And who stretched out the line upon it to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstones? God is asking Job, where were you when I planned out and began my creation of the physical universe. And then God reveals something very critical, very important. When that, when God was doing that, he says, where were you, Job, when I was laying out my plans, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? When the angels beheld the fact that God was going to create this universe, this physical universe, the angels were already there and they they rejoiced and they they were overwhelmed and they were they were excited. They were already there. So they preexist the physical universe. Clearly, that's why they were able to rejoice when he was even beginning his plans to create the physical universe. That's point two. Point two. Later, God created the spirit world. Point number three. Point number three. When we talk about God's plan. God's 7,000 year plan. We look forward to the millennium, and we do. Christ's return, the millennium, the thousand year reign, and then the white throne judgment, and then the rest of forever. We look, we talk about it, and we look forward to it. It's why we're here. We're, we're behind the work that is preaching that truth. This is what preceded all of that. God has been desirous of executing that plan forever. And in that timeline that goes infinitely back in history and will go infinitely forward, we are a important but tiny little blip, but very important with what he's doing uh, with us through the church. So we get to step number three. Sometime later, God created the heavens and the earth through Christ. So step number three in, in my sermon today, for the purposes of my sermon, is that it was then later that God created the heavens and the earth through Christ. And that's where we'll turn to Genesis 1-1 uh, quickly, just to read it, and then we'll, we'll turn to a couple other scriptures. 
Uh, you, we all know that Genesis 1-1 says, in uh, a beginning or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But let's turn to a couple other scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, verse 5. So here we have God creating the universe. Isaiah 42, verse 5. And it's just so encouraging, brethren, that the Bible is right. And the Bible uh, knows more about science because the Bible is God's mind. Uh, then science begins to understand about the universe. And there's no contradiction between what the Bible says and, uh, and, and the truth of science. Isaiah 42, verse 5. I've always found this really just encouraging. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. More on the spirit later. I always am encouraged by this. Isaiah 42, verse 5 and another couple passages are passages that reveal that God stretched out, spread out the universe. Like one casting a net. That is the implication. That is the uh, the definition of the word that's used here when God uses the language spread uh, spread forth. It's natah, N-A-T-A-H. N-A-T-A-H. God did not accidentally or erroneously use that word. Natah means to, part of the meaning is that you're, Casting out a net. It's like casting out a net. But that word doesn't have an end. That verb doesn't have an ending to it. It's, it's sort of, it just, it doesn't imply that you cast it and it stops. There are other Hebrew words. I looked these up years ago and, but that he could have used that, that would imply you're, you're kind of throwing something and it, and it kind of lands and stops. He didn't use that word. This word doesn't necessarily mean that it goes on forever, but it can mean it goes on forever. Before I tell you why I get so excited about that, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah chapter 51. And we'll see where there's another passage, similar uh, concept that God records, you know, what, 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. So Jeremiah 51. There weren't any big telescopes back then. No big supercomputers back then. Jeremiah 51, what did God say here? Verse 15. He has made the earth, oh, he has made the earth by his power. There again, God did it. God created everything. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. Why I get so excited about this is that if you had lived hundreds of years ago and you believe this, if you'd lived hundreds of years ago and you thought anything other than that this is this is the earth and, you know, everything's going around it. If you thought anything other than that in the Western world, they would nail you or tie you to a stake and burn you to death. And people were. 
Now science is discovering, only within the last few decades, and, and some of this is within the last years. I remember I grew up and went through the redshift thing. Redshift. You know, that was science fumbling around yet again, trying to figure out what was happening with the universe. And for those of you my age, uh, we weren't sure when we were taught in school, well, I guess the universe is going to end up contracting. Now we don't teach that anymore. It's, a, it's accelerating faster. Just like God said. Just like God said. God cast out, spreads forth the universe. He is beyond describing how powerful he is. And, and he, by his power, he is casting it out, spreading it out. What's exciting is that the Bible knew that. And we teach that. And you can understand that. But in 1970 or 80, or even in the late 80s, um, that wasn't, uh, wasn't understood. So point number three is that, all, um, is that sometime later, God created the heavens and the earth through Christ. Point four, millions of years after Genesis 1-1, we get to Genesis 1-2, and we're going to talk about the gap fact, or the gap theory a little bit. So let's turn to Genesis 1, verse 1. So now we're at point number four which is millions of years after Genesis 1-1 is Genesis 1-2, or we could just say the gap theory or the gap. Again, this is what we teach. It's what the church has taught down through time, recent time, back into Mr. Armstrong's time. So Genesis 1-1, we all know, we all know the, the, the verse. Uh, in the beginning, or in a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and so forth. Now, what really happened is Genesis 1-2 uh, reveals that the earth became without form and void. It became without form and void. A uh, lot of big books written about this. A uh, lot of PhDs argue about this. We don't need to argue about it. and We don't need to be confused by it. It's, it's very straightforward. It's able, we're able to prove this. The earth became. And we, need, we do need to spend some time on this. How can we be absolutely sure that God did not create the earth without form and void? How can we know that? Did God create the earth as a big disaster zone? Is that what God did? No, no, he did not do that. How can we know? How could we know? How did the earth... And probably some of the, the second heaven become without form and void. How did it become tohu and bohu? Now, we're going to talk about the Hebrew word hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, briefly, which is found in Genesis 1, verse 2. <clears throat> and uh, we all understand that in the modern Bibles, it's often translated was, the earth was. Uh, that word hayah is translated usually was. And uh, it should be translated become. But why? Just because we take... Mr. Seselka's word for it. That's not why you have to believe that. Now, the Hebrew word can mean became. And it can, mean, it can also mean was. So let's not debate that. Let's just accept that. It can mean became or it can mean was. It's based on context. Usually it means to become. But that doesn't prove anything. All it proves is that it can mean became. And I'm telling you, it means became. 
but we're going to prove it. It's based on context. Usually it means to come to pass. Usually it's translated come to pass or became. Bible translators from centuries past, most likely innocently, were trying to make Genesis 1-1 fit into a 6,000-year time frame. Just like these people that are trying to put dinosaurs on the ark and all this stuff. Okay? So, they made a mistake. The fact is, Genesis 1-1 is far before the 6,000 years began. Genesis 1-2 is where we begin, roughly, dealing with the 6,000-year time allotted to man. It's important to understand that regardless of what people want to argue, uh, Genesis 1-2 does not mean was in that verse. Now, how can we know this? I'll give you two points. The first is the least uh, conclusive. But the first point is simply that the word haya can mean became. It's translated that way all kinds of other places in the Bible. The second point is more powerful. To say that God created the, the uh, earth, or really anything, bad and ugly and disastrous is, in my opinion, close to blasphemy, and it is a, uh, a contradiction of Scripture at a minimum. There are a lot of Scriptures that, that contradict that God would do that, that he would create things ugly and terrible and tohu and bohu, that he would create things in, 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 in chaos. That is to say that God would do things ugly and bad and wrong, I, I don't like to even say that as a, as, as a, that it's a theory. God does not do that. God is righteous and God creates things good. <clears throat> We're going to come back to uh, Tohu and Bohu uh, momentarily. We're going to move on to point five. Maybe save a line in your notes if you want to put more of the answer here or, or later. So point number five. After Genesis 1 verse 2... God recreated. Let's turn to Psalm 104. After Genesis 1, verse 2, God recreated. He repaired and fixed the heavens and the earth. Psalm 104. And we'll begin in verse, probably verse 30. Psalm 104, verse 30. You send forth your spirit. And they are created and you renew the face of the earth. You renew the face of the earth. Uh, God will do this again through Christ at the second coming when he will refresh the earth. Uh, you can read about this. So it's alluded to in Acts chapter three. Uh, let's not turn there. And I think it's verses nineteen, twenty, and so forth. Romans eight towards the end of Romans talks about this as well. But here in Psalms, <clears throat> there's this allusion to God sending forth his spirit and they're created and they're renewed, they're refreshed. What did God do in Genesis 1, verses 2, 3, 4? Let's turn back there, and let's just read it for ourselves. Genesis 1, verse uh, 2. And I'll have to move fast. <clears throat> so the earth became, Genesis 1, 2, without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he allowed the light to come through. 
And God saw the light and he saw that it was. What's the word? Good. And you see that repeated throughout the recreation. He doesn't create things bad. He doesn't create things in Tohu and Bohu. And then you see the the recreation. He's refreshing the creation. Verse six, God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and divide the waters. He had to clean things up, put things back in the order that he that he wanted them to be in so that he could bring man, human onto the scene. And you go through here, verse 10, he called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And he saw that it was good. Verse 12, he brought forth the grass, the herbs that yield according to its kind and the trees that yield fruit and the seed and the and the seed that yields according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. He creates uh, the animals later. Let's before we get to that, let's let's notice uh, verse 17. God set them in the firmaments of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and the night, to divide them. So speaking of, you know, the sun and, and moon and God saw it was good. He didn't create them there. They were around. He set them in their place. He cleaned up the the sky. And they were good. Created the sea creatures, the great creatures, and they were good. Verse 25, it was good. <clears throat> so point number five. After Genesis 1-2, God recreated, he repaired and fixed, refreshed the heavens and the earth. Now, he did a lot of creating then as well. I mean, he, you know, there he had to create the fish and the trees, but the universe had been around. And the earth had been, uh, uh, it had been, uh, it had been turned into Tohu and Bohu. But it was, it, it was already there. He had to clean it up. And he made it good again. Point number six. Then we get to man. Point number six. Then God created man. Then God created man. Genesis one, verse twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Here's where man comes on the scene. Not millions of years ago. But about six thousand years ago. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, what a what a what a privilege. You know, we weren't made like the ants or the snakes or something. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. We have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So the men and the women are made in God's image and the women are just as precious and important to God as the men. And, uh, you know, we need to have propriety uh, in how we dress. Uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble and, and uh, give a different sermon. But but, um, you know, Satan uh, is responsible for not only all the pornography, uh, he's partially responsible. Mankind's responsible, too. And that just tearing down and, and all that pornography that just destroys. But he's equally responsible for putting these women in these burkas 
where it's 150 degrees, the men and women are created in God's image. And that's Christianity, and that's the truth. Not a satanic twist where the women have to feel like they're, uh, you know, they should feel ashamed of themselves. Then he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion, and so forth. Verse 31, and it was good. It was good. When God creates, he makes it good. The earth became Tohu and Bohu. He didn't make it that way. He does not make things in chaos. We know in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that God is not the author of confusion. But let's turn to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. All this sermon is, is sort of the piecing together of, of what you've heard for many years. And so now for those of you uh, who have been around, you know that we must turn to Isaiah chapter 45. This is where we now turn. This is, this is the proof, one of the proofs. Isaiah 45, and before I read it, what did Genesis 1-2 say? It said that the uh, earth, I'm paraphrasing, became without form of void. It became what? Tohu, Bohu. Did God make it that way? Or was there a gap between 1-1 and 1-2? I guess the next question to ask is, do we believe the Bible and fear God and fear what he says and believe what he says. And can we read a word or are we going to be stiff necked and, you know, get confused and so forth? Genesis one, two, it became Tohu and Bohu. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not Created in Tohu. God did not create the earth in Tohu. It became Tohu. How did it become Tohu? Still in point number six. It became Tohu. Somehow, let's turn to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. We know that there was a mighty cherub that was given authority to govern and rule over the earth. And we know that that mighty cherub rebelled. So in verse 1 and 2, we talk, uh, God talks about the prince of Tyre, and he becomes lifted up and so forth. But then we come down to something else in verse 11. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, Then moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, 
and say to him, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. I won't spend a lot of time because we know these passages. You, you know these. We just have to put them together in the right order. And we have to just believe what the Bible says. And then we've got the story. So you were the seal of perfection, perfect in uh, beauty and so forth. You were in Eden. This king of Tyre was in Eden. This is Satan. And so he was ordained. Verse 13, he looked beautiful at one point. And apparently he could sing real well. Verse 13. And he was the anointed cherub who covers. And God established him. Verse 14. And he was on the holy mountain within the government of God. And he walked back and forth in the midst of the stars and the nebula throughout space and amongst the other powerful angels, which we only see a glimpse of. We only see a glimpse of the angelic world. We only know a little bit about it. And he was perfect, verse 15, in all of his ways from the day he was created until iniquity was found in him and so forth. And he became full of violence and he sinned. And therefore, verse 16, God cast him out from the mountain, from the government. Where did he cast him to? It says verse 17 that his heart was lifted up. So he cast him to the ground. And Satan was humbled. Isaiah 14. Records the same basic story. Isaiah 14. So now we're far back in history again. But we're explaining further how things got to the state they were in Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Isaiah 14. Same account. How you are fallen. Isaiah 14 verse 12. From heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you you who weaken the nations. You who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Satan was full of pride, he went to attack God's throne. He said in verse 14 that he would ascend to the heights of the clouds and be like the most high. You know, brethren, (laughs) we're, we're made fun of by taking the Bible literally But it's amazing that when you take the Bible literally, that everything makes sense. Science makes sense. But when we don't fear God's word and we get off into goofy other stuff. then things don't make sense and our youth. Will be confronted with facts that won't make sense. And they'll throw out the Bible and God. Satan is attacking the truth in every way he can. And one of the ways he's attacking the truth is this new earth foolishness. So Satan said he'd ascend to the heights of the clouds and be like the most high. Yet, verse 15, you know, where's hell? You're standing on it. Satan was cast down to Sheol. Now, I don't mean that in any insulting way, 
about you know God's earth. But Satan was cast down to Sheol. And he's restrained. And of course, we know, according to Job and other places, that God allows him access sometimes to go report and so forth. But he was cast down to the earth. And he's sort of stuck here. He's restrained here. Satan was the ruler over the earth prior to his rebellion. According to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, according to Ephesians 6, verse 12, he's still ruler over the earth. God allows him to still be the God of this age, which explains a lot about why things are, frankly, going so bad. God is immeasurably more powerful than Satan, and he will not replace Satan as the ruler of this earth until he sends Christ at the second coming. Jude 1, verse 6 Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, other places. I won't turn there for sake of time. Uh, give more insight into this, how Satan's restrained, the demons are restrained. To quote Mr. Armstrong from the booklet, Did God Create a Devil? He wrote, The earth was created perfect and complete, then it became chaotic as a result of rebellion. What God creates is good, Rebellion creates Tohu and Bohu. Still in point number six. What about dinosaurs? I think when we understand what we're discussing in the sermon today, then, then dinosaurs don't get us all weird. Okay? So there were dinosaurs. There's fossil records of big creatures and ape-like looking things that lived uh, millions of years ago, and it's and th- 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 that's just reality. It's not my intent to get into Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon and all these things, and things that were not human. But there were animals. There were animals back in ancient, ancient, millions of years ago time. Who created them? What created them? How many scriptures did we read? Answer that for yourself. We read the answer, what, four or five times. There were no humans back then in the dinosaur days. Nothing evolved. So what is a human? What is a human? We're talking about God's plan. And we're at point number six, creation of man. What is man? Genesis 3, verse 20. What is human? Genesis 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Humans come from Eve. According to the Bible. She wasn't the mother of, you know, chickens. She was the mother of humans. What is human? Humans come from Adam and Eve. What is human? Only humans 
have the spirit of man in them. Let's turn to Job 32. Job 32. I am not concerned about dinosaurs. Only humans have the spirit of man in them. Job 32. And verse 8. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the almighty gives him. Understanding. There's a spirit in man that gives us understanding. We are not the same as animals. We are unique. Humans come from Eve. Humans have the spirit of man in them, which gives them understanding. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, please. Proverbs 20, verse 27. What is human? The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of that man's heart. What is human? All humans come from Adam and Eve. Humans have a spirit of man in them. And humans have a flashlight that God shines into their heart. And he sees us and knows us in an intimate, special way. Humans are unique. And he's doing something unique with us. The spirit in man allows us to have understanding, gives us a mind so we can think and reason at a human level. Only man has the spirit of man in us, and that is one of the key things that makes us human. We're also created in God's image, as we read earlier, Genesis 1, verse 17, but at a much, much lower and physical level than God, of course. But we have the ability to think and create, to dream, to plan, to obey God and to grow in righteousness, which lions don't do. And cows don't do. Romans 8, verse 14. So God is doing something with this very special human creation. With you and me and those who even are out in the world and don't know God. They're unique as well. And he's working with his creation with us in a more intimate way, but he's working with his whole creation, including all the other people out there and working out his plan. <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 14, we're very different from animals. Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Cows are not led by the spirit of God and donkeys and turtles. And although, you know, in our family, there's a special affinity for turtles. Romans 8, verse 14 and 15, as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear and so forth. Verse 17, verse 16, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, the Holy Spirit and our spirit, the Holy Spirit and the human spirit can do something together that God doesn't do with a cow or a rock.
bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are children of God and becoming children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him for a while, then we'll be glorified together. Second Peter one, verse four, verse four, second Peter one, verse four. Second Peter one, four, very unique. Humans are very unique. By which, cutting into the thought, we uh, have given to, by which having, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that are given to humans, not to, you know, again, cows, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Escaping the desires of the world to go Satan's way, escaping that and be partakers of the divine nature. For a purpose. We are special to God when we die. In reference, we won't turn, but Ecclesiastes 12, verse six and seven makes it clear that when we die, there's no thought. When we die, Ecclesiastes 12, six and seven, no thought, no suffering when you're dead. You're you're just, you know, the computer's turned off. Ecclesiastes nine, verse 10. In other places, let us know that we're preserved and when God's ready. The computer's turned back on. This is what God is doing for humans. Of all physical things, the Holy Spirit is made available only to humans God calls, John 6, 44. We repent and are baptized, have hands laid on us by a true minister of God, Acts 2, 38. Then we can receive the Holy Spirit in us and be part of this plan that goes back forever before time. Only humans can understand this in the physical world. Only humans have the spirit of man. Only humans have the ability to become sons of God, to overcome, to obey God. This is beyond profound. I I am not interested in the nonsense out there with this new earth stuff. This is profound. With the Holy Spirit in us, we are able to obey God, keep his commandments, keep his laws. Let's turn to 1 John 5. 1 John 5. Verse John 5. And verse 1. Often, I'll begin in verse 2, but I want to begin in verse 1 because it, it ties it into the sermon. First John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Do you believe that Jesus, who died for your sins, who lived and died, he was perfect, that he is the Christ, he is the Word? Through him, all things were created. Everything. I believe that. This is his word. I believe what it says. And when the angels rejoiced at Christ and the Father. Planning the physical universe. 
That's the God that you worship. And so I believe that. And whoever believes that will be born of God. And everyone who loves him and who believes that and believes that this is the plan that God is working out. This is the 7,000 year plan we're talking about. That we're participating in. That we preach about. That the telecast is about. That Mr. Armstrong taught. This is the hope for mankind. This Brexit thing very likely could send us into a depression. Did the angels not rejoice before time began at the plan that God was putting forth? So what? We can't survive the Brexit? If we believe that doctrine, by this we know, then we'll do the following. Verse 2, that we're the children, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We, we go to First John 5, 2 and 3 a lot. And, and, we, and, we, and we do well, but verse 1 ties it into this, this sermon. And so we'll, we'll behave accordingly. We'll, we'll be obedient. We'll, we'll, we'll believe that God is working out this plan. And we'll show our love to God by keeping His law and, and keeping His commandments and, and knowing that His commandments are not burdensome. Only humans can do that. Only humans can have the Holy Spirit given to them. And only humans in the physical level can have the Holy Spirit taken away. If they stop obeying, where do you find that? Where do you find that? So we all have people that have left the church. And then you talk to them and they it's all a mystery to them again. Well, Acts 5.32 makes it clear that the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is made available to those who obey. Who obey. So we obey. We keep the Sabbath and the holy days and we practice love for each other and we support the work and we uh, try to live by God's law and we don't do it perfectly, but we also believe in God's plan and we believe in the 7,000-year plan and we don't believe in this other silliness. Mr. Armstrong wrote in a Plain Truth article in 1978, what science can't discover about the human mind. And Mr. Armstrong wrote the following. The human spirit also adds to man a spiritual and moral faculty not possessed by animals. God made the God had made the needed second spirit, the Holy Spirit, available to Adam. But on Adam's rebellion and taking the forbidden fruit, God had driven Adam out and closed all access to the tree of life. Symbolic of his Holy Spirit. Yet through Christ, Mr. Armstrong continues. This is just it's what we teach. We've never stopped teaching this. Yet through Christ, a repentant humanity may yet receive God's gift of his Holy Spirit. To Nicodemus, Christ said, quote, and this is a quote from uh, John four. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus could not quite understand that, Mr. Armstrong continues. Almost nobody today understands it. Jesus explained, continuing, that which is born of uh, the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's actually from John 3, not John 4, sorry. Man came from the ground, he is flesh. flesh, Mr. Armstrong continues. Jesus was not talking about another physical birth or experience of conversion in this life, but about 
a spiritual birth when man shall be spirit, no longer composed of matter, but composed wholly of spirit. Yes, all caps, literally, exclamation point, Mr. Armstrong. Then he shall have been born of God. God is spirit. Then he cites John 4, 24. A last quote from him. Now to become, become human, each of us had to be begotten by a human father. Likewise, to be, be born again this, of the spirit, which is of God the father, one must first be begotten of the spiritual father, God. End of quote. Now we, we, we understand this. And again, the, the world doesn't understand this. Point number seven. Point number seven, for the purpose of my sermon today, point number seven is simply the kingdom of God. And in many ways, point number seven is the beginning of of a big, big, huge story that we don't know a lot about. God reveals a lot about what will happen during uh, the uh, the ride of the four horsemen and um, and then the and then the tribulation and the day of the Lord. And then there's, we, we understand a little bit about the beginning of the millennium uh, and we understand a lot about God's law during the millennium. And then we, we know a little bit about the great white throne judgment. We know what will happen then. We know the important things. And then we know it's going to you know, go on forever. And there's not a lot um, about what's going to happen, you know, 62 quintillion years from now. I, I, it's, I don't, you know, we know that, that of the end of his uh, reign, at the end of his kingdom, there, there is no end. And we know it will be perfect. No more suffering. We know that. We know the, the principles so there's a lot more to the story. <clears throat> so point number seven, the kingdom of God. After working with man for 6,000 years, Christ will return, and this will begin the 1,000-year millennium. Uh, this is what Revelation talks about in large part. Let's turn to uh, one scripture, Revelation 11, verse 15. And this is what we're excited about. And this is the good news that Dr. Meredith preaches about, Mr. Ames, the faithful ministers all around the world. This is what we we're excited about and you're excited about. And just we don't have time to go through, you know, much, but Revelation 11, uh, verse 15, uh, the seventh angel sounded. I could have dropped in anywhere in the story, and, but we're just going to briefly read this part. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's the beginning of the rest of eternity, the rest of the story. At this point, we have, you know, a lot of things are happening here, but we have the establishment of the kingdom of God coming up shortly thereafter and the first fruits receive immortality. And so now let us answer the question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon. Why did God inspire Elohim and not Eloahim in Genesis 1 verse 1? Dr. Meredith writes in the booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny. He writes the following. In his final letter, Peter described how God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Dr. Maris quoting 2 Peter 1. Do all these scriptures mean what they say, he asks. 
Can we honestly spiritualize away the many, many inspired scriptures that tell us to be holy, to be like God, to yield to him so he can place within us his own divine nature? Dr. Meredith concludes, consequently, it is logical. And I, I, I love it that he used that word. It's logical. It is logical. It's, just, it's logical. Now, you have to have the Holy Spirit to, to understand this. And I, I know that. And you, you know that. But, you know, in, in Romans, doesn't it basically say in Romans chapter 1 that, that even the carnal, unconverted, you know, smart uh, people out in the world, that, they, that they're willingly neglect, I'm sorry, rejecting the truth, and they're basically fools, and they're basically just, you know, contorting logic. You know, it's logical to consider the idea, he writes, that it has been God's plan all along to reproduce himself. This is what the God family, Elohim, had in mind when they said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Genesis 1 verse 26, end of quote, from your ultimate destiny. Elohim, there were two, but they wanted millions. And so they said, Elohim, not Elohaim, which is just two. So for the purpose of the sermon today, that is the seventh step in God's 7,000 year plan, which really goes back to before time began. Before time began. And now we're sort of at the beginning of the rest of the story. An amazing story that we preach about, that you know and you believe in and you pray about and you support. But we can't fully grasp it. We can't fully grasp what being full members of the God family will be like, but it will be wonderful. We'll live in peace and harmony forever. Practicing God's perfect law forever and being perfect with God in Christ forever. And so that is encouraging. And that is, as was my title, the purpose of Elohim and God's 7000 year plan.